Awesome. As, uh, as Ian said, it is, it is a new year. And like he said, a lot of you are gonna be uh, having New Year's resolutions. Uh, those of you who aren't part of the Christian faith, you hear checking things out, you might have your New Year's resolutions. For most people, those things last about five, six weeks if we're doing well. Um, and then it's the hustle and bustle of the, 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 the year upon us. Um, but maybe right now you are trying to think ahead and you are thinking of, hey, what does my year look like? And you're asking the sort of questions of, hey, what am I meant to be doing this year? What am I meant to be giving my time to, my attention to, my, where should my focus be this year? And that's what I just wanna um, chat around tonight. And it's gonna be a sort of uh, uh, one note that I'm just gonna pluck for the next 40 minutes. Um, and uh, hopefully we are all inspired. I want us to be inspired. I don't want anyone here to feel um, um, useless and, and guilt-ridden and like, oh my gosh, this year is gonna, looks like it's gonna be a slog to do this, this Christian life. That's not the, the big idea at all. Let me kick off uh, by reading to you uh, two quick scriptures from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and if you, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, these are sort of bookend things that Jesus says. One's right at the beginning, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the last one is the last thing he says in the Gospel of Matthew. So these are sort of bookends to uh, Jesus' life and ministry, and these will be up on the screen now, hopefully. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 19. Jesus said to them, follow me, this is a group of people, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's right at the beginning of his ministry. You skip ahead three years, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the last thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came and said to them, this is another group of people who've gathered around him, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, people who follow me, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So these are those bookend things that Jesus said. And if you go and do a study of um, all the verses in the middle and you take all the other gospels into account, Luke, Mark, John, and you do a study on this thing of being a disciple and following, you'll find a sort of pattern, a, a small grouping, a cluster of things that you can sort of sum this up in because Jesus says, hey, follow me, come and be a disciple. And at the end, cool, go and make more disciples. And in between, we're learning what the life of being a disciple is. And a disciple, I don't know if anyone else ever hears that word outside of church circles. And normally when it's applied in other things like, oh, he is, oh man, I don't even, can't even think of a context. It's normally having some sort of religious understanding that then you apply that thing to. Um, and often when we have a word that's just become a religious word or we only hear it in church circles, we, we often don't quite get the meaning of it sometimes. And so maybe a better word for us to grasp hold of what this word means is an apprentice an apprentice, that's someone who is, is looking after towards someone, seeing what they're doing, seeing what their life is about and following. And so you'd have that in various trades, um, in the electrical trade and the engineering trade, you'd often be an apprentice of someone and you would learn from them. So that's what a disciple is. For your money's worth, the Hebrew word is basically a Talmudim. That's what a disciple is. So you, if you like cool words there, Talmudim, a disciple and an apprentice. And Jesus is saying, I want people to be my apprentices. And what an apprentice of Jesus, what a disciple of Jesus um, did or what, is, what their life looked like was basically ordering their life around three things, ordering their life around three things, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And, and I would say to you, I can find all those things, if you just go back one slide, um, I can find all those things more or less in that first verse. Um, 
follow me, come be with me, come get proximity to me, um, follow me, get close to Jesus, be with Jesus, um, and then become like Jesus. I will make you into something. I'm gonna conform you, I'm gonna shape you into fishes of men. That's people who are being sent and commissioned by Jesus. And so being a disciple is someone who is with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. Maybe I can say it another way if you like um, rhyming things. I'll give you three C's or four C's. You, first of all, you're called by Jesus. He says, come, follow me. Come, give your life to me. Come and, and trust in me for salvation. I'll explain that a bit more just now. Called by Jesus to become closer to Jesus, to be conformed by Jesus and commissioned by Jesus. There we go. If you need your four C's, um, that's all I got for you this message, but there they are. Um, and so all I wanna do tonight is just look at that first one of, of being with Jesus, being close to Jesus. One of the first things that uh, uh, an apprentice of Jesus, if that is you, what you need to be doing is getting close to Jesus, being with Jesus. And so the message is gonna be in two halves. Being with Jesus, what is that? What does that look like? And then how do we do it? How do we, how do we be with Jesus? So I hope that's cool. So we're gonna kick off by being with Jesus. And as I said, it's, it's implicit in the call there in Matthew 4. Um, you can go to the next slide. You'll see it there, I've highlighted it. Follow me, follow me. It is that thing of proximity. Back in the day, if you wanted to follow Jesus, who was a Jewish rabbi, and lots of people were apprentices of various rabbis at the time. If you wanted to follow your rabbi, um, what you didn't do was log on to Twitter, click a button and then forget about it for six months and be like, oh, I followed those 18,000 people. Let me go see what they're saying like a year later. No, if you were following someone 2,000 years ago, you packed up your bags and you went with them. You, there was no email, there was no satellite television, there was no updates on your phone. If you needed to follow someone, you needed to be in proximity. Otherwise, you wouldn't hear, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't be able to check out what their life was about. So that's what, that was the call, follow me. You had to relocate in a way. So go back with me now to the beginning of Jesus' ministry around that time of Matthew 4 and he said, follow me. I wanna read you a little bit of a story from John's version of it, John's gospel, John 1. It won't be on the screens. Uh, so hopefully just follow along, get the picture in your mind's eye and we'll, we'll carry on from there. Early in Jesus' ministry. The next day, again, John, this is John the baptizer. He was kind of a precursor to Jesus, a prophet that was sort of the final Old Testament prophet expecting the coming of Jesus, God in the flesh to save his people from their sins. John was standing with two of his disciples, apprentices to him at that time. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now what he was saying, saying the Lamb of God, he was saying, hey, Jesus is the, the, the updated final version of the sacrificial lambs that we've been sacrificing to God for thousands of years to atone for our sins. Jesus is now that person. He's come to lay down his life once and for all for sin so that people can be reconciled to God because that's the problem with the human race. So that's what he's saying to his disciples here. Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So I love that. John is like doing his best to like groom these guys and like, you know, get them to follow him. And then they see Jesus and they take off straight away to follow Jesus. It's, a, it's, it's actually what he wanted at the end of the day. And Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, about four in the afternoon. Skip down a little bit further in John 1, 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael, a mate of his, and said to him, hey, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael's mind was blown and he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What what you'll pick up in these verses is what Jesus said there and what his early disciples were saying, which was come and see, come and see. And if you here tonight are exploring faith, you're exploring Jesus, maybe you're just exploring the big questions of life and this is one of your options. The invitation 2000 years ago and the open invitation tonight still from Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God is come and see. Come and hang out with me. Quite practically, that was what he was saying. Literally, come, come and spend the evening and come and spend the next day hanging out with me, following me around as I go about doing my life. Follow me, come and check me out. That's the, that's the invitation to everyone. Now, some of you who are perceptive right now might say, that's brilliant for people 2,000 years ago because, um, and any historian worth his salt would say this to you, secular or otherwise, uh, that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person who walked around. So that's cool that you could have just got up and followed Jesus. But the problem is Jesus, Kyle, Jesus is not walking around anymore. So, and apparently you've told me he doesn't have a Twitter account. So how am I meant to be following Jesus? What does that actually look like? And... Um, It's true, Jesus isn't walking around in the flesh. What happened is that Jesus, the Lamb of God, did go to the cross and pay for our sins and he died. But he didn't stay dead. He had conquered sin and therefore he had conquered death, which is our biggest enemy that we all have. He rose from the grave, proving that he conquered it, starting a whole new revolution. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, which is where he had originally come from, in heaven with his Father. And that's where Jesus is now, for those of you asking that question. Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and calling people to himself. He's calling every single person in this room to him tonight. But that's where he is right now, which does give us a problem that he's not here for us to follow. But he said, don't worry. The night before he went to the cross to pay for our sins, Jesus had his disciples together, his apprentices, his Talmudims, and he said this to them in John 14. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. You can translate that another one of me, another one like me, to be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him my disciples, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you, Jesus said. And he carries on. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's an invitation from Jesus to peace. And he said, how it's gonna happen, how you're gonna get peace and how you're gonna get proximity to him is via the Holy Spirit. It's via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of Jesus. In some parts of scripture, he's even called the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of Christ. Um, He's the Spirit of, 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 of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And he is now living and dwelling in 
Christ followers. He literally, my devotion this morning, little Francis Chan devotion I was reading, it was all talking about the fact that we are the temple of God. We don't need a, a temple in Jerusalem anymore to house the presence of God. If you're a Christ follower and if you're a member of his church, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and the Holy Spirit dwells among us. So we need to be with Jesus, if that's the big idea, be with Jesus via the Holy Spirit. And here's a quote from John Mark Comer, who has helped me a lot in this talk, I'll be honest. Um, he said this, the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. The first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness and connection to the Holy Spirit. So that's step one. That's step one is um, be in the presence of Jesus. Get there, get to the presence of Jesus. Um, we have a job readiness program. A lot of you might've heard of it, the Zanokanyo Network. Um, it's a super helpful thing with so many people uh, from under-resourced backgrounds looking for work um, have participated in and I've got to sit in on some of those sessions. And one of the first things they teach people on the course, it's like a two-week course. One of the first things they say is, um, Show up, make a priority in your life of showing up because if you don't show up, um, you, you're not gonna keep that job. You're not gonna make a success of your life. And in a similar way, that what Jesus would say tonight is, hey, first step, number one, just show up. He's like, it's, I'm, I'm here already. The, inv the invitation is for you to come and show up and be in my presence. And Jesus shows us how to do this. He, uh, the next chapter, the same night, he's with, his, he's with his disciples, his apprentices, the night before he goes to the cross. And he has this famous, famous passage from John 15. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And if you're a Christ follower, you've trusted in Christ for salvation. Jesus would say, you are clean. You have been washed clean from your sin. And the invitation to anyone else who's not a Christ follower is to come and be washed clean by the words and work of Jesus. So you are clean. He's talking to his disciples. Now abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's beautiful sort of um, intimate mutual language. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much proof fruit and prove to be my disciples, prove to be my apprentices by the fruit and the character and the stuff that flows from your life. So the picture here is, is a, a branch abiding in the vine. We live in the Western Cape. It's a metaphor that many of us should be familiar with because uh, we have a great wine heritage here going back like 500 years. Um, but he, Jesus used this word abide and he used it 10 times in actually quite a short teaching. So if, if, if emphasis uh, means importance, Jesus is really, really trying to hit something home here, this thing of abiding. He's trying to say, hey, make yourselves at home in my Father's presence. That's what abiding means, to be at home. Make yourself at home in my Father's presence. Root yourself, ground yourself. That prophetic picture from earlier was so spot on. As it, as it came and was shared, I was like, that's exactly what the message is about. Come and abide, come and root yourself like a tree. Come and be in the Father's presence. Come and center yourself in the Father's presence all day long. That is the big, big 
idea. And basically, this is gonna come down to, and it's gonna sound really strange, but it's gonna come down to being in two places at once. It's gonna come down to being in two places at once. Why? Because the call of Jesus to be in the Father's presence is not a call to go and disappear into a monastery for five years. That's not the big idea. You read the gospels, that's not what happens. That's not what happens. People carry on with Jesus, going to the vegetable market, um, tending their cattle, um, going to the temple, whatever it might be. They didn't um, need to go off into a monastery to be in the Father's presence. They had the presence of God with them. You read the New Testament. So we need to learn to be in two places at once, having breakfast in the Father's presence. In C point, running on the prom in the Father's presence. At university, in your lecture, in the Father's presence. Having a cup of coffee with a coworker, in the Father's presence. Shopping for groceries, in the Father's presence. This is what Jesus calls abiding, communion with Him. We just finished up uh, Ephesians for like a million weeks, a lot of you will be feeling. And uh, uh, Ephesians 6, Paul, this is, Paul's language is, he's talking about the same concept, but he says, pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing. It's this concept of, of, of consistent abiding. Our Catholic friends would call it, call it um, contemplation or contemplative prayer, I stuffed that word up this morning. Contemplative prayer, or some of them call it advanced prayer. It sounds very cool. Uh, there's prayer, which all of you guys do, and then there's advanced prayer, which I do. Um, <laughs> I don't do it, but, um, but that's the big idea, is ongoing, continuous, sort of 24-7 communion with God. And... Uh, if anyone has heard of, uh, anyone heard of Brother Lawrence here? Uh, Brother Lawrence was, uh, I've just dissed monks, and Brother Lawrence was a monk. So he actually was in a monastery for a lot of his life. Uh, but Brother Lawrence, he was a soldier, and he, it was, he lived between sort of 1617 and 1680, somewhere around there. And um, he was a soldier who got converted to Christianity. He went to be in a, a Catholic monastery, I think. And he spent his time in the kitchen. So he ran the kitchens, feeding all these uh, monks, who didn't have much else to do except eat and pray. So I think he had a lot of work in his hands. Um, and he worked in the kitchens and he wrote a very famous book. It's almost more like a pamphlet called The Practice of the Presence of God. That's what he called this, this thing of, of communion with God, the practice of the presence of God. And he wrote a whole bunch of letters to uh, followers and friends of his and they became this little book, which um, my wife owns. I actually read it about a year or two ago. Um, here's a quote from his book. It should come up on the screens from Brother Lawrence. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clutter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. So there's the chaos. I was just catching up with my mate, Ayanda, who, who works in, who works in kitchen, kitchens, and he knows, the, he knows the chaos. And Brother Lawrence is saying, amidst that chaos, I might as well be at, at, at mass with my, with my brothers and sisters on my knees, receiving communion and praying. It's the same thing in many ways. Not to say that there isn't a special time for, for other types of prayer, um, but, but this is something we should be doing above and beyond that, the practice of the presence of God. Uh, Dallas Willard, he is a Christian philosopher. Um, he's influenced a lot of guys. He hasn't really influenced me. I know Rigby, who oversees Common Ground, loves Dallas Willard. Um, he was a sort of, yeah, philosopher in California. He died about five, six years ago. Here's a great quote from him on the same idea. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdens and habits of dwelling on things less than God. I love this. But these are habits. They are not the law of gravity, and therefore they can be broken. 
A new graceful habit will replace the former ones as we take the intentional steps forward, uh, steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. So there's this, there's this lifetime of, of practicing the presence of God that's before us. And in a very real, real way, it's rewiring our habits. It's rewiring our brains, rewiring our souls uh, for a lifetime. So it's gonna take a while and it's gonna take intentionality. It's, it's, it's not gonna happen overnight and it's not gonna happen without being intentional. And let's be honest, in our sort of digital connected age, this is gonna be an absolute minefield uh, where we are just bombarded and not just with busyness in terms of um, school things and, and varsity things and work things and, and, and church things and friend things, um, but also just the little demon in our pocket called our cell phone. It's just gonna absolutely distract us and, and cause chaos. Um, and William Paulsall, he says this, it is unlikely that we're gonna deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our lives, but nothing is gonna enrich our lives more. That's his big idea. So we need to be with Jesus. If we're apprentices of Jesus, we need to be in his presence. We need to be in the presence of God because that's the first thing that's gonna shape us. It's gonna bring us peace. It's gonna change our lives. It's gonna impact the world around us, which is all stuff that we want. So how do we do this? How do we do this? What is this practically going to look like? This is gonna be the, the second part of my message. How do we do this? How do we be with Jesus? Especially, as I said, in, in, in the chaos of the digital urban age. There's gonna be traffic for me in five weeks' time. There's gonna be screaming baby. Um, it's all gonna be happening, meeting after meeting. At the privilege, of, um, at the privilege on, Wednesday, on Friday night of, of being at a wedding and I had uh, two people next to me who I'd never met before that night, both people who don't consider uh, Jesus to be God and their savior. They're not Christians, that's what I'm trying to say. And yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have complicated that more. People who don't love and follow Jesus, simple. Um, and then obviously the conversation came up, hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor, boom, gateway opened, cool, let's chat about faith and that whole thing happened. Um, and we had cool chats. One of the things we all agreed on together was um, we are living in a consistent state of social anxiety. Um, and the, the, the world has just, this has rapidly increased. And we were chatting about the fact that when I was a kid growing up and so, Maybe as a kid, it's not the best example uh, because I didn't care about global politics when I was seven, but my, my parents would have. Um, and when I was seven, uh, at our home, you had television from 1 p.m. to 11 p.m. at night, one station, and then that was it. I grew up in Zimbabwe in the early 90s. That was it. And if you wanted news, you had news from, I think, 5 to 5.30. It was called Naundaba, and we used to watch it. And it was mostly local, regional stuff on, uh, on Zimbabwe. And if you really wanted some international stuff, you had BBC Radio, and you had that news for like half an hour here and there. That's all we knew about the world a lot of the time. There was no internet. There was not 60 million DSTV channels. There wasn't a million people following on Twitter and on Facebook and giving their opinions about who knows what. And there wasn't Trump invading Iran every five seconds. And you know, like you just didn't have that stuff. It was out there, it was happening, but it wasn't consistently in your mind. It wasn't consistently in your pocket, causing you anxiety. And friends, the anxiety levels have shot up since social media has come in the last 10 years. Even when I was doing students ministry, I remember the first year, 
there was a few students who mentioned the word anxiety. By the time I left three years later, I would say like a third, if not a half of the students that I spoke to said, I'm struggling with anxiety. And maybe half of that half was going on medication. Um, I'm not opposed to medication. I'm currently on anxiety medication. So it's all cool. Don't worry. But <laughs> what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, elders, pick this up later. I'll be gone tomorrow. I saw you. Um, but we really are in a chaotic age. How are we meant to be in the presence of God practicing this tranquil peace that Jesus seems to promise. It's a real, real problem that we're facing. So that's what we're gonna chat about for the rest of our time together now. And um, in all honesty, it comes down to one simple thing and it's not rocket science. It's simple, but it's not easy. Much like the gospel, it's a very simple thing, but it's not always easy to accept and understand. Um, And it's this, live like Jesus, live like Jesus. It's not rocket science. The practices of Jesus, what Jesus did um, are the things we need to look at because he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived in communion with his Father. And so if if we're meant to be doing something similar, uh, we should check out his life. It would make a lot of sense if he's the person that we're following. And so the practices of Jesus is something that I wanna just exalt and put onto a pedestal tonight and say this year, um, let's recapture them. They do get quite a bad rap in our modern Western church um, in many ways where it's not about doing things in the Christian faith. And that's true. You don't become a Christian by doing things. You become a Christian by trusting in Jesus and starting a life of following him. But from there, life with Jesus involves doing stuff. It really, really does. And so the, the, the sort of what, the call, what are called the spiritual disciplines are huge. And there's no list in the Bible of them. There's not like, and here they are, six things, go. But there are things like this and you'll see them coming up in the gospels and elsewhere. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude, that's the one thing that I really need to work on. Ian challenged me on it two, three years ago, big time. Prayer, fasting, reading your Bible, keeping the Sabbath. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday, but it means a weekly rhythm of proper rest and rejuvenation and connection to God. And maybe spiritual disciplines is not a great word for many of us because um, two things. One, we hear discipline and we're like, ah, oh, no, I'm out, tapping out. We're like a toddler. It's like, don't do that. Uh, I wanna do it. Do that. Uh, I don't wanna do it. So disciplines doesn't always help us. Um, and when you think spiritual, you think ethereal, disconnected, nothing to do with practical living. So maybe a better word here to again use is habits. Habits. Habits, practices that are gonna help us and shape us. And these spiritual disciplines, these habits, what I love is that they actually are their, their mind and heart and their body and soul. They are whole life practices that orient our whole bodies and our whole beings towards Jesus. They're not just um, something to do with uh, mentally ascending to a bunch of truths and they're not just about airy-fairy feelings. They're whole life endeavors. And to be honest, for the majority of church history, definitely for the first 1500 years up until the Reformation, and then in many other traditions um, since then, the spiritual disciplines, these habits, were the, the building blocks and the first steps of those who came to faith. Um, so these days, when someone becomes a Christian, um, what we'll often do, and I'm, I'm, I do this stuff, it's not bad, um, we'll say, cool, let's, let's study the book of Romans or let's study the book of Ephesians or let's go through this New Believers course or whatever it might be. None of those things are bad. I do them. I, literally, before I went and leave, I did basics for believers with a bunch of guys. Um, but it, that hasn't always been the case. It hasn't always been the case. We've lost something because what used to happen is these spiritual disciplines would be the things that, that people would be discipled in as they came to faith. And so day one, you know, 500 years ago, oh, you're a Christ follower now, brilliant. Fasting, let's talk fasting. Let's go fasting. Come, we're not gonna eat for two days. That's how it would have happened. That's how it would have started. It's like, oh, this thing is real. This is not something I 
ticked on Twitter or you know, clicked the box or whatever and now has nothing to do with my life and I've, I've said I believe something and now it has no bearing on my life. No, it would have been a very real practical thing. I'm spending time praying. I'm spending time um, encouraging other believers, spending time reading the Scriptures, spending time praying silent solitude, whatever it might be. And as I say, these have kind of become obsolete. They're kind of things that um, if we do them, we don't do them as regularly or well as we should. And if we don't do them, we feel guilty that we're not doing them. And if someone tells us to do them, we say, shut up. Um, don't you judge me. That's the one verse in the Bible I know. Judge, judge not. And so then we get all uptight. Um, but no, these are beautiful, beautiful means of grace. They are means of grace. They are means to an end. They are means to getting into the presence of God and being with Jesus. So reading your Bible, um, the end goal of reading your Bible is not to read your Bible. The end goal of most things is not that thing, but this, we'll just start slowly. The end goal of reading your Bible is not to read your Bible. But then I'll go one step further and say the end goal of reading your Bible is actually not even to know your Bible. Knowing your Bible is a good thing. I would love us to all to know our Bibles, um, but this is just my hypothesis. Satan has been on the world for a long time and he's had access to the Scriptures. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if Satan has memorized the whole Bible. So knowing your Bible is not just the end goal. No, the, the end goal is knowing and loving and living like Jesus. That's the end goal. The apostle James said, he's like, hey, don't just be hearers of the word, deceiving yourselves. No, be doers of the word. Otherwise, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole point. You're meant to be being with and living like Jesus. That's the big idea. That's what these habits, these spiritual disciplines are for. And I mentioned Jesus's John 15 passage of abiding in the vine. Paul has a similar thing in Galatians 5, and I'm just gonna read it. It's quite a famous passage. It won't be on the screens. I just want you to hear the words in your head. I'll just read it. It's slightly lengthy. Galatians 5, 13 to 25. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, Christ followers, disciples, apprentices. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, here's the clincher, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, he says. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And what I wanna highlight from what Paul is saying here is a lot of us, if we don't look at the passage carefully, what we hear is Paul commanding us to be more loving, be more patient, be more kind, be more generous, be more self-controlled. And if you just read the passage, that's not what he says. Now, there, there is a place for, for Jesus and the apostles and each other to command each other to say, no, do this, 
don't do that. There's, there's many passages in the scriptures that say that. So it's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's actually not what is said in this passage. What Paul does here is he doesn't command us to do these things. What he does say is walk in the spirit. And later on he says, keep in step with the spirit. And the fruit of the spirit, the result of the spirit is gonna be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The big idea is we need to be with Jesus in order for him to be able to change us in order for things to change in our lives. Um, we can act a little bit more loving and we can act a little bit more patient. We can just will it. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to will it. Don't hear me saying that. If, if you have an opportunity to be patient or be impatient and if you can choose patience, choose patience. And if you need to use all the willpower you have, do it. Not a bad thing. But willpower has a very finite supply. Normally it's gone by 9, 9.15 a.m. And, and then you're stuffed. And what Paul is saying here is, is uh, don't, don't, don't try to do these things. You need to be a different person and you can't just be a different person. You need an inner disposition of your heart to be changed in order for you to be a different person. Otherwise, you're just gonna have to rely on willpower, which isn't gonna last very long. And Paul is saying, it's fruit, it's fruit metaphor, it's grape metaphor. Abide in the vine and fruit will happen. It's exactly what Jesus was saying. So we need to live in connection with God throughout the day and we need, to, we need to use the very practical practices and habits of Jesus in order to be able to do that. I wanna pop up this quote from John Mark Comer. If you wanna experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You wanna experience the life that Jesus experienced and that he wants for you, life in abundance. You have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. It's not just about believing the right stuff. We need to believe the right stuff. Heck, you can't be a Christian unless by faith you've trusted in Christ. You don't be a Christian by doing a bunch of good things. But then living the Christian life, it's about following. It's about a lifestyle. It's, a, it's about becoming someone. It's about these habits. Um, on the prom, there are many great athletic people who run up and down the prom. I am not one of them. I try to get a run in a week. I don't think I've done it this year so far, but it's early. It's early. <laughs> one of my New Year's resolutions. Um, but but um, there, are many, there are many people who casually run, and then there's those people who properly run. Steph, uh, one of my good mates, one of the elders at Sea Point, um, he is a runner. He, he is ripped to shreds. He does like five times running a week. Like yesterday, he woke me up um, at 9.30 with a phone call. Um, I'm, I'm busy being woken up and he's just come back from a run. So that's the kind of thing. So he's a runner. I run, he is a runner. Um, and I've got a great runner that I wanted to put up here. If you needed someone in your mind, you can go to the next photo. So there, Ollie Lindley. Many of you will know Ollie Lindley. Ollie Lindley is a runner. And I admire people like Ollie Lindley and I admire people like Steph. Um, and I would love to be a runner, but I don't wanna do the lifestyle that is needed to become Ollie Lindley. Um, I backed the guy, I love the guy. I handed my job over to him when I left here. I backed the guy. But there is a lifestyle. There are rhythms and there are um, priorities and there is training and there is intake that needs to happen in, in order for you to, to be a runner, to live the life of a runner. There's a lifestyle that goes along with it. And take, this, take anything, take, you wanna be a great musician. There's a lot, it doesn't just happen overnight. There is a lifestyle of practice and practice and spending time, you know, honing your skills. People who are well-read, they read a lot, like, duh. 
And so often we want the outcome. We want the outcome. We want to run like Ollie or whatever it might be. We want the brain of so-and-so. But man, the lifestyle that it seems to take in order to have that life um, is, something that is, is the thing that often stops us. That's the thing that stops us. And the truth is our life is a product of our lifestyle. Your life, whatever it might be, is a product of your lifestyle. The rituals, the routines, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you organize your, your daily schedule, your week, your year, your life is a product of that lifestyle. The system that you've designed for yourself, whatever system that is, or the system that you have just let happen to your life is designed perfectly to give you the results you're currently getting. That's the bottom line. Whatever system you've designed for yourself in life to, to have a successful, meaningful, whatever life that you've got for yourself, whatever system you've set up in place now, it's perfectly designed to give you the results you're currently getting. And so if we want different results, we have to figure out the different system. And what it is, friends, it is those spiritual disciplines. And we need to look at Jesus, look at Jesus' life. This year, we're gonna spend um, tons of time in the gospel of Mark. So that's brilliant. We're literally gonna be on the move with Jesus, on the ground, seeing him, daily doing what he was doing. It's gonna be a great opportunity for all the common ground congregations to spend time with Jesus, to see what he's doing. But Jesus models it. You can see Jesus is never in a rush. He's, he's never in a rush. He spends time for silence and solitude. He spends time to teach. He spends time to eat. You look at Jesus' life. He spends time sleeping. He's very careful about his sleeping. When all the disciples are freaking out on the boat and there's a storm, Jesus is like, and I will sleep. He's intentional about his life. And so we need to look and we need to learn the habits and the practices of Jesus this year in order for this to happen. Because what's gonna happen is our phones will dictate that. How many times do you swipe your phone a day? The average person swipes their phone 2,617 times a day. Average, middle of the bell curve. And for many of us who are in the younger generations and some of you are now Gen Z, you're, it's more than that for you. It's like, 5,000, I don't know what it is. You'll spend two and a half hours on your phone swiping it 2,617 times. That is, gonna, that is gonna shape us, that is gonna mold us this year unless we can figure out ways to put that thing away or to swipe the Version Bible app or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> these are the things that we need. And coming into land shortly, here's a quote again from Dallas Willard, that, that Californian philosopher. The general, the general human failing is to want what is right and important. And we do that, I think we want these things. But at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. Friends, the lifestyle of Jesus is the way to the life of Jesus. If you read the book of Acts, in Acts 11 in Antioch, it says, and, and the, the disciples were first called Christians. But before that, they were called something else. They were called followers of the way. This little Jewish cult that had risen up in Israel were called followers of the way. And that's it. We have a, a living, breathing person that we follow, that we are modeling our life after, who's offered us peace, Often we don't feel, we don't experience the peace in our ages of anxiety that we want to experience. But then we look at our lives and they look nothing like the rabbi we're claiming to be an apprentice of and we wonder why we don't have the peace that he had. We need to be with Jesus. We need to be apprentices who sit at the feet of Jesus in the presence of Jesus and we will then experience the peace of Jesus. And so I love what Ian used to say when 
used to be on base on Mondays and we used to chat about, hey, what's God saying to you this week? And, and we would often chat about um, quiet times and what God is saying. And there would be times when Ian would talk about his quiet times and he'd say it was a mountaintop experience. Mountaintop experience, amazing. And there would be times when he would say, today was a brick in the wall. It was a brick in the wall, brick in the wall, brick in the wall, but it shaped him. It's shaped him. And so there's gonna be times in the presence of God where it is a mountaintop experience and there's gonna be times when you lock yourself away for silence and solitude for 20 minutes and it might not feel amazing, but it's a brick in the wall that you're building for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life. It's gonna serve you well. It's gonna serve your family well. It's gonna serve the city and this world well. Maybe we can leave it there.